So first of all, let me just see if uh, uh, the little talk we had before we sat, uh, that might have provoked uh, questions or comments in anyone. If it did, then this is, this is the time to pick up that thread. Yes? Hmm? Um, it all made total sense to me. There's lots of food for thought there. I'm wondering if you might um, have anything to say about how what you said directly affects or how we can uh, surround our practice with that or bring that into our practice. Is there an element that we can incorporate into that or a way of thinking about it? Well, yes, there are, uh, but, well, Pam, to, to give you a focused answer, maybe you could tell me, I, I think I, I said a number of different things, and so what is the particular thing that I said that you, that's, uh, that you're asking about? Well, you were speaking about how the mind uh, constructs the our inner and our outer world. Mm-hmm. And... Um, how every what we think about is a construct based on a broad spectrum of causations. Um, So as we meditate, for instance, and as these thoughts come in and these distractions and so on and so forth, and we try to work through that, um, is there um, there a way of, 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 of perceiving the thoughts that are coming in uh, in light of or in view of what you were saying. I mean, we, you know, I'm, is that better? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, <clears throat> um, the wonderful thing about when you sit in meditation, uh, you close your eyes and you start to focus your mind, is that all of these things that are so difficult to grasp when you're walking around out there in the world with your eyes open become much, much more accessible. And um, one of the things that is evident in meditation is just one of the first things I mentioned that there is so much going on at any given moment. It's all about what you pay attention to. You know, you are conscious of whatever your attention rests upon. And so, you know, you sit down to meditate and you keep trying to direct and sustain your attention on the meditation object. And you discover that there are all these other things that are competing with with that for your attention. So, um, and from time to time, something will capture your attention and uh, whether or not you forget the meditation object you're now preoccupied with something else and so your meditation practice reveals to you what's happening in the rest of your life that the experience that you're having depends so much on what you're paying attention to and of course in meditation you discover these two different ways that the attention moves. One is that uh, you choose to direct it and place it. And the other is that uh, it's 
seems to be, it, it moves by itself or it's caught by something and, and drawn away, right? And so this is something that once it becomes really clear in the meditation experience that it also, uh, if you if you bother to pay attention, it becomes really clear in, in your daily life that um, most of the time, most of us in our daily lives do not exercise any deliberate intention over uh, uh, what our attention goes to, right? And so what we pay attention to, and therefore that aspect of our reality, uh, we just allow ourselves to be at the mercy of uh, uh, our mind's uh, conditioned inclinations, and whatever happens to the speaking most loudly out there in, in, in the world. And just as in meditation, you can uh, have totally different experiences once you start to deliberately direct and sustain your attention. The same thing's true out there in the world. So, you know, uh, for example, somebody said that uh, their job is really difficult and they're finding it, it terrible and things like that. So, one of the first things that you, or, or one of the things that you can do, I shouldn't put the first in there, but certainly one of the things that you can do in any situation you find your, yourself in is to first of all become mindful of what's happening with your attention. You know, what kinds of things are you focusing on? And what effect do they in turn have on your mental state and your emotions and, and the other dimensions of your experience? And then beyond that, what are the choices that you have? You know, um, and you move from back and forth between the external things that you can choose to attend to or that you can allow your attention to be captured by. The same thing internally. You know, the thoughts that you either allow yourself to get captured by or that you intentionally uh, direct yourself towards or, or away from, and it starts to make a really big difference. The other aspect of this is that more and more in your meditation, uh, you become aware of this distinction between uh, the stories the, the, the labels the mind puts on things and the stories the mind makes up about things and that the raw material that uh, it's doing this on the basis of is just simply sensation and of course we close our eyes and, and one of the most dominant senses is no longer a part of this and that helps us to become really aware that what we hear and what we feel in our body uh, you know we can be aware of those as sensations and then we can see the labeling and, and uh, fabricating and storytelling activity of the mind that's taking place. And of course you can just blindly bull your way through your meditation to reach a, a state of, uh, of, of bliss without noticing all these things. But it's much better if you take the time in your meditation to notice all these things and then you can get up from the cushion and you notice all these same things. You've got your eyes open and there's even more stuff going on. 
but you can you you start to have more and more glimpses of how uh, my mind is taking the raw material of my experience and is telling a story around it, is creating construction around it, and there's nothing there's nothing so special about that construction that it deserves to be regarded as more real than a lot of other possible things. So not only is it a question of what you pay attention to, but what your mind makes out of whatever it happens, whatever you happen to notice and be conscious of. I'm speaking very much in abstract terms here, but uh, if you translate that into, into the kinds of experiences that we have, uh, we interact with somebody <coughs> that person, you know, due to their views and their perceptions, uh, which are inevitably, and I, you know, want you to mentally underline that inevitably part, inevitably are different than yours. But as a result of that, you have an interaction with them that leaves you with some, you know, you're, you're angry or you're upset or you're offended or you feel insulted or whatever it is, you know. Some... Uh, and, and it's a disturbing emotion. And uh, you see, you can see, just by being mindful, you can see all of the things that flow out of that event. The thoughts that you have, the mental states there, the way it causes you to react to other people, the way it causes you to uh, perceive things. You know, you might have, before that interaction, looked out the window and thought, oh, what a beautiful day. And now you look out the window and you don't even see what's out there or, or, or what you see is, oh no, the wind started up again. Oh, yeah, that sort of thing. It's a question of becoming aware of things. So just bringing that awareness is a part of your experience. And, uh, and this, this gives you the flavor of, uh, of the emptiness that we're talking about, of the fact that your mind is creating your reality continuously, but you're not at the mercy of it. You know, if you, it, it's not, uh, it's not something that you are uh, without the ability to influence. And as time goes by, and as your awareness increases, the, your ability to influence the way your mind creates your reality just becomes greater and greater all the time. So. That would, that's a, uh, yeah, that's a way that you can bring this into, into your life, into your awareness. It's something, it's, it's very important if you, uh, if you have taken for yourself the goal, which I hope you have, or have, that, that you're doing this to achieve awakening to achieve, uh, an experience of the true nature of reality and, uh, uh, a realization that is uh, that will uh, liberate you from from the ignorance and the compulsions that have ruled your life. So if you take that as the goal, then it's very important for you to practice all of the time, uh, seeing things more as they really are and less from uh, our accustomed pattern of mistaken, mistaken presumptions. And so any situation that you're in, the more clearly that you can perceive the way that uh, 
the dynamics of, of your mind uh, creating it and generating your reactions and conditioning itself so it's going to produce other kinds of reactions in the future. And likewise, seeing it in other people, uh, it's it's th- this thing of of seeing these things internally and externally and both internally and externally in yourself and others and both uh, in, in yourself and others is very, very important because you begin the process by seeing how this works in your own mind. But when we're looking at ourselves, uh, there's still uh, we still have a lot of blinders. <laughs> so if we as we begin to be a bit familiar with the process of what's happening in our mind, and then we start noticing it in other people, we have the advantage now that we can examine the same thing that we're looking at ourselves, but with greater objectivity, because we're now seeing the results of that internal process as they manifest in other people, and it helps us to have a deeper understanding of it. And of course it works the other way, too. The more we understand ourselves, the more we understand the more we can relate to, the more we can, uh, in a sense, become one with the other person. And so the less we slip into uh, our projections of anger and blame, uh, of impatience, uh, all of these other uh, things that we so easily fall into. So. You're welcome. You had a question over here? I had some reaction to the, you know, what we were talking about before the presentation, and uh, not not that we need to dwell on this at all. I'm going to ask uh-huh. about that. Well, first of all, the word emptying, you know, we don't have to stick with it, but I think it feels like an unfortunate word <laughs> to mm-hmm. me because uh, you know we have a certain conception of what. Yes, yes. Is, and I don't, it doesn't feel like we're talking about empty, but just anyway, I just think it's an unfortunate word. I, I suppose yes. the Buddha used it. Yes, I, yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean, and uh, I, I do know of a number of people who uh, find it to be a really difficult word. Some, some of whom, uh, without really knowing why, seem to have had a sort of negative reaction to the use of the word uh, right from the beginning. And the, it, its appropriateness is really in terms of its empty is denoting an absence of something. Yeah. Um, and what it is denoting an absence of specifically is, is uh, the kind of reality that we assume that the phenomena we experience have. Uh, and it's hard, you know, as much difficulty as the word empty may provide for some people, it's really hard to find a better alternative. I mean, we could say absence, but then that would be even worse, you know. Um, well, I just, I mean, I said, I don't, I don't have to go on that. And the main reaction I had, and Again, we don't have to get into this deeply if we don't want to, but uh, certainly a significant part of what you're talking about is truly not having strong 
self-centered emotional reactions. And I mean, we all do. And it seems like part of the work is to to dissipate those, not not in some kind of a false way, but in, mm-hmm. in a genuine right. way. Because it, I know for myself, whenever I'm having an intense reaction, that's when I, I mean, everything goes to the wind. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so, I don't know, that, that's, that's a big challenge. Yes, it is a big, it, it is a big challenge. Uh, and really, the, the wonderful thing about this, this teaching about the Buddha Dhamma is that it's not just about this challenge because the degree to which you can temporarily master, and, and this is what it is, it's temporarily. When you succeed, it's on that occasion only, and on the next occasion it may or may, may, or may not succeed. Our ability to temporarily master uh, these compulsive emotions that come from this self-centered place uh, is something that uh, requires a, a lot of work. It's not always successful, and it can be lost. And of course, the more diligently you practice, the more focused you become, the more mindful you are, the less likely this is to happen. But the wonderful thing is that this whole path is uh, leading us to a place where a very remarkable thing happens. A truly remarkable thing happens that uh, there is a change that takes place in the mind. Mm -hmm. There's a part of your mind that's function is to uh, generate this idea of self because we need that to function in the world. We need that to live. You know, you, you, you know, my joking way of referring to it is if you didn't have a sense of self, you could never keep your laundry separate from anybody else. But that's a kind of a trivial thing. But the fact is that you can't, you know, we can't obliterate our, this important mental function which is identifies what, what, what is self in this sort of conventional relativistic sense. But the remarkable thing that happens at a crucial stage in the practice is a change takes place such that that part of the mind in the future will continue to function, but uh, it's no longer believed in. Okay? So it is seen as as a function, as, as a functional thing the mind does, but not as a reality. And when, when that happens, then uh, overcoming the tendency for uh, to come of this out of the self-centered place and to be uh, compelled by the emotions associated with that becomes a totally different thing. Uh, the, and this, you know, uh, the Buddha described that there were four stages of awakening, and that three important changes took place in the first stage of awakening. The most important of those three is. The, the loss of attachment, of belief in the reality of the personal self. The other two are uh, doubt, you know, through, through not so much this experience, although partly due to this experience, but most especially due to the results of this experience. The person's doubt about the, about the 
this dharma, about this practice, is permanently overcome. And the other, the third thing that's overcome is a belief and attachment to uh, rites and rituals and rules. But the most important thing, the thing that makes the real difference is that that this mental construct of self is no longer ever mistaken for something that's really real in, in and of itself. From then on, it is recognized for what it is. It's a mental construct. It's functional, and uh, it's it, and then the different what what happens here. Uh, you see, the, the person who experiences first stage of awakening is still subject to those emotions, those self-centered emotions, and still subject to those mental habits that have arisen out of a lifetime of believing in this personal selfhood as being a real entity. But the difference is that they can then, whenever they recognize that these unwholesome emotions, desire, aversion, greed, lust, hatred, envy, any of these other things are arising, and that these are based in this false sense of self, it is it is incalculably easier to overcome than it was before. As a matter of fact, there's one sutra that uh, I can't remember, I have terrible memory, I can't remember the names of it, really the name of it, really the detail, but the Buddha starts out saying to his bhikkhus, he says, uh, is there more dirt under my fingernails than there is on the ground here? You know, and they say, well, much more on the ground than under your fingernails, venerable sir. <laughs> and he says, that's the, that's the difference between the person that's achieved the, uh, this uh, first stage of awakening and has lost the, the conviction of the reality of this personal self, their ability to deal with these unwholesome uh, emotions. Hmm. It makes that comparison. Uh, and then what the yogi does to reach the second stage of awakening, that, is, that comes when they realize that uh, they are constantly experiencing these different mental states many of which are conditioned by desire and aversion, and that the only truly wholesome mental state is that which uh, is, is not conditioned in that, way, in that way. And this brings them to the second stage of awakening. And in the third stage of awakening, they completely overcome uh, desire and aversion for things of the sense realm. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so, that's shows you, you know, what you're talking about. Fortunately, we are not limited to just having to fight against these natural tendencies over and over again, endlessly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I was just thinking of an experience that might kind of relate to this whole thing, and I'm not totally sure how it does, but... But I have that PTSD stuff that happens, and it's like this hyper. It's a PTSD kind PTSD, of effect that happens, uh, and it's like this hyper arousal thing where the mind just goes, you know. And what it does is like the senses get really, really intense, and everything yeah. gets kind of like in the like this little stressful state, and it's very unpleasant, or it can be. Yeah. And 
it's kind of interesting because we've been doing mindfulness practice with it and also just other things and it seems like it really honestly seems like the mind is just recognizing that that stick doesn't make any sense anymore mm-hmm. and it, it's really interesting because it's like it's not something that I'm like deciding to do or anything <laughs> and it's not like and it didn't feel like it was something I was deciding to do when it happened mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. but it really feels like it doesn't happen as much and when it does happen a lot of times it Oh wait a minute! It's like it catches itself. Yeah. It's like, oh, don't do that. <laughs> and it really is like on some level, the mind has just learned this thing, and I don't know what kind of brain changes that might be. But but it isn't like it, it isn't like it wasn't like a struggle, and it isn't like oh I have to do this or I have to do that. It's just like this because I can kind of help it out sometimes to be like you know, but it's not like it's like a like a Christian thing. You know, you have to fight against your impulses, and it's nothing like that. So I was curious. Well, you. Here, that's exactly right, Terry. That's a, that's the way it happens. That it it becomes there. There is this change that takes place, and this is the nature of uh, the practice of mindfulness and of the insights that come from it. it as as they uh, as they percolate down deeper and deeper into our psyche, they change the way our mind works and they change the way that we uh, react and, and respond. Mm-hmm to the same situations. Uh, and the one of the things that I notice over and over again is that the same the same patterns recur in at many different levels. And so what we're describing what Terry's describing here uh, is it it is the same thing that happens in awakening, but it happens in, with insights and with the practice of mindfulness that uh, is not is not uprooting something so fundamentally a part of our ignorance as the deluded belief in the reality of our personal self. But there are all these other things that are not quite that deep. But when when we gain the insight and when it makes the transformation, it has exactly the same kind of feeling that, uh, you know, whether it's PTSD and the, the emotions associated with that, or whether it's a habitual tendency to anger, or whether it's being a fearful person by nature, or so many of these other things that we could point to. Uh, if it's being a grasping kind of person, it's difficult to manifest generosity and so forth. Any one of these things that you consistently apply mindfulness to, the mindfulness will begin to see this particular behavior and its consequences, uh, and and, and not analytically, but just through direct seeing and the application of mindful awareness, will begin to understand how this fits in with everything else, and will come to the conclusion that that this is not something that works. And as a result, as this understanding becomes more and more profound, then you'll start to experience it happens less. You'll start to experience that when it does, you recognize what's happening so much more easily. And having arisen and your having recognized it, it's so much easier to deal with it until eventually you come to the place that the particular thing that you've been working on has basically uh, been 
your mind is restructured, so it's it's no longer it's it's nothing like the problem that it was. It's exactly the same process that leads to this much more fundamental uprooting that we call the first stage of awakening, because uh, desire and aversion are obviously rooted in the belief of self, and so. Uh, uh, that's getting to a deeper root is what it is. It's extirpating the cause. Um, the, uh, and you may kill the root, but the uh, trunk and the branches and the leaves may still live for a while, but uh, they're going to be much easier to deal with. <laughs> so, hmm. yeah. I don't know if it, I mean, to me it doesn't make sense to think of it in terms of killing. It makes sense more to think of it in terms of Sort of just giving your mind a chance to look at it and to like realize, like, oh, wait a minute, this is what's happening. And it's sort of like, in a sense, just, I mean, on a brain level, it might look like some kind of reorganization or something. Uh, like. yeah, You're giving yeah. your mind a chance to try it out. Because sometimes I think that, that, that image of battle and stuff can just cause all sorts of. You know. I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Reorganize, uh, reorganization. Uh, well, uh, probably the best, the way that I prefer to see it is the replacement of ignorance with understanding, mm-hmm. with a kind of wisdom. It's the, or the, uh, the elimination of a particular kind of ignorance. Because all of these behaviors, when you, when you examine unwholesome behaviors with mindfulness, what becomes so terribly obvious that you can't imagine why you didn't realize this your, your whole life, but you know, <laughs> that this, why didn't I realize ever what a big problem this was, how unwholesome it was, how much suffering it was causing me, how much misery for me and other people this was causing me. You know? And so it's that understanding that causes your mind to change the way it works. Yeah, reorganizes the brain. I have no doubt that one of these days, somebody is going to say, well, we've done this, this kind of research and we can see how people have overcome anger. They rearrange the circuits between these two or three parts of their brains, you know. And it's it's going to turn out to be that something at that level. Yeah. But that happens already. And what you just uh, described as... Um, Recognizing patterns and changing patterns, and the fa- the more you you put mindfulness to it, the faster you recognize patterns before they even go on and on. It's the same in psychological treatments. And yeah. The choices you have uh, instead of feeling powerless, you have just one, and they find that out already that this has a lot to do with with brain uh, re reorganizing. So, what would you say? Um, not the difference, but but the levels of um, what psychological treatment helps and what is the the in the bigger word the spiritual part of. Well, I would say the difference is uh, the the really significant difference is that the spiritual practice uh, is is changing things at a deeper level, and in particular, it's going after the root, the root cause. Uh, and that is, on the one hand, more effective and more efficient because 
you know, you can spend an awful lot of time working on the various manifestations, but if you can if you can penetrate to the very to the very root cause and, and deal with that, then the results are much uh, broader, profounder, quicker, you know, and most especially permanent. Um, the the problem that I, I think has often been apparent in different kinds of psychological therapies is that uh, a deeply ingrained mental pattern uh, it can if it's dealt with in one form it can seem to disappear but then it can show up again in another form or uh, some of the various factors that uh, were involved in that pattern can reemerge in some some new form, and so now we've taken care of that problem, but uh, now we have a new one to deal with. And so the the real advantage and the difference, you know, I, I, I think the goals of psychological therapy and the and the goals of spiritual practice uh, are the same, but the spiritual practice. There, there's a profound level of wisdom and understanding in the teaching that directs us to uh, to make the changes at the deepest possible level, the most fundamental possible level. And the other thing that is important about it is the incredible power of the methodology. Unfortunately, what's happened is that uh, We've come to a place of not of, of believing that that methodology is very difficult, and achieving the the power that it offers is is, uh, is something that very few people can do. And fortunately, there are some people trying to uh, employ mindfulness practice in in psychology, but uh, you know. The whole world, all of us need this kind of therapy, <laughs> and uh, we need we need it in a way that produces results more more quickly. You know, uh, if the if the future of our species depends on spiritual awakening, which I personally believe that it does, uh, spiritual awakening that's a hit-or-miss affair dependent upon you know, spending uh, 15 years meditating in a cave is not going to work. <laughs> it's just not going to do it. Yes? Um, I want to keep going along this line of thought. It's very, it's very nice. Um, earlier, we were discussing here about when we become mindful, we can see in others certain patterns, traits. And I think that maybe in certain forms of psychology, I'm thinking mostly Jungian psychology, mm-hmm. which my understanding is very spiritual based itself, um, bring in mythology uh, as well. I think that 
what you're saying, maybe, I, maybe I'm missing this, but part of the practice, then if we become mindful um, and bring in a psychologist, etc., who is also mindful, can speed up that process, be part of the reflections of ourselves that we can't see because we're in that process. So I'm curious on your take, what, what things can we do to bring this to the community as a whole? As we start to awaken ourselves, what part of our practice goes beyond us, not the self, but to, but to all of us? If we can awaken humanity. Well, the most important thing is, as you said, to awaken yourself. And once, once you have achieved that, then it's going, it, several things are, are, are going to happen, but one of them is that other people are going to realize uh, that this is something that they too could benefit from. And unless you present yourself as being some kind of really, really unusual person, they're going to be able to, they're going to look at this and say, this is something that is accessible to me as well. And uh, so by awakening ourselves, we can spread the awareness to others that this is something that is achievable and uh, desirable, more desirable than all the other things that they spend their time pursuing. And so there's the motivation factor. Now, I think a very important thing, you know, you said in the practice, if you bring in a psychologist uh, and, and, and take the knowledge of the psychologist, you could see it as being a way of speeding things up. I, I, I put this a little differently. I'd say that if in the process of your awakening, you can understand the underlying workings of the mind that allowed you to, uh, to master the various practice techniques that led to your awakening. And if you can understand the nature of the mind such that you can see how awakening unfolds and the things that are necessary and likewise the things that stand in the way, then you are in a position to help and guide other people. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the really important part. That, that's the part that's missing. And right now, I think even the psychologists who are using mindfulness practice and teaching it to their patients to help them don't have this understanding of uh, how they achieved what they achieved and the nature of the path that this mindfulness is a part of. I think that's the part that's, that's missing at this time. And I think that that is the unfortunate thing that has been lost over time. I'll read something to you here. That this, by the way, the book that I showed you last week, The Life of the Buddha, I showed you a shiny new copy. This is, my, this is my old copy that is my favorite. The shiny new one will never be as, as good. But um, <laughs> when, after the Buddha had left home, I don't know how many of you know anything about the story of the Buddha, but he was, uh, he, he was a prince of a small kingdom in Magadha. And... Uh, 
he, he left the princely life with its wealth and comfort uh, to begin a spiritual search. And so I'll just read to you now. Uh, this is the Buddha speaking. Now I went forth from the house life into homelessness to seek what is good, seeking the supreme state of sublime peace. Therefore I went to Alara Kalama, and I said to him, Friend Kalama, I want to lead the holy life in this law and discipline. When this was said, Alara Kalama told me, The venerable one may stay here. This teaching is such that in no long time a wise man can enter upon and dwell in it, himself realizing through direct knowledge what his own teacher knows. Now, let me just reread the important part of this. This teaching is such that in no long time a wise man can enter and upon and dwell in it. So, I'll skip a little bit, and he says, Then I went to Alara Kalama, and I said to him, Friend Kalama, how far do you declare to have entered upon this teaching, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge? When this was said, he declared, The base consisting of nothingness. Now, just to point out to you, uh, the jhanas are considered to be the highest and most lofty states of meditation, or some people describe them as the deepest and most profound states of meditation. Take your pick. <laughs> but anyway, in terms of what can be attained, uh, in terms of states that can be attained through meditation practice, uh, they are the highest, and there are eight of them. And this one here, called the base of nothingness, is number seven out of eight. And so when he's saying to this, this uh, newcomer, this prince who has just cut off his hair, uh, put on a robe and wandered into the forest and says, Friend Kalama, I want to know everything. Teach it to me. He said to him, uh, This teaching is such that in no long time a wise man can enter upon and dwell in it, himself realizing through direct knowledge what his own teacher knows. Uh, the Buddha mastered that uh, teaching in a relatively short time. We're not told exactly how long, uh, but the, the total period of time from when he left home till when uh, he achieved his uh, supreme enlightenment was seven years. And in that time he... Uh, did a variety of other practices. Uh, there were, uh, and uh, so we we don't know how long this is, but presumably, considering all the things that we're talking, a period of, of a few months, most likely. So anyway, he succeeded, and he said, "I soon succeeded." Then I went to Alara Kalama, and I said to him, "Friend Kalama." Is it thus far that you declare to have entered upon and dwelt in this teaching, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge? And he told me that it was. I too, friend, have thus entered upon and dwelt in this teaching, myself realizing it through direct knowledge. And Alara Kalama says, We are fortunate, friend, we are indeed fortunate to have found such a venerable one for our fellow in the holy light. 
So the teaching that I declared I've entered upon, myself realizing it through direct knowledge, that you enter upon and dwell in, yourself realizing it through direct knowledge. And the teaching that you enter upon and dwell in, and this is a lot of repetition here, I'll skip ahead. He says, says, as I am, as you are, so I am. Come, friend, let let us now lead this community together. Uh, Okay, and uh, the Buddha-to-be thought about this, and he said, uh, this this way does not lead to dispassion, to fading, to love, lust, to cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana, but only to the base consisting of nothingness. I was not satisfied with this. I left it uh, to pursue my search. And so then he approached another teacher, Dr. Ramaputra, basically said the same thing. And Dr. Ramaputra says the same thing, that what I teach can be easily mastered in a short period of time, and that's the important part of it. And what Dr. Ramaputra taught was no less than the eighth jhana, the highest possible meditative state that's attainable. So, um, and the Buddha, realizing that this wasn't uh, this wasn't the uh, enlightenment that he sought, left Ramaputra as well. But the important thing that I want to point out here is that. In the original words of the Buddha recounting his own encounter with these teachers, he's not saying, well, I was such an absolutely remarkable, special, different than everybody else person that in spite of this being almost impossible to achieve, I did it anyway. He says, my teacher said, well, anybody can do this in a short period of time, come and do it. And sure enough, I did. So that's quite quite different than our common experience of meditation these days. And I feel like it's what's missing is the uh, is that profound understanding that helps to guide a novice to the place of skill uh, rather than getting stuck in, uh, in these various places along the way. The other thing that I want to point out to you is very, very similar to this. And that has to do with the awakening, the enlightenment. Uh, the Buddha set out teaching and everybody he talked to when he explained things the way they were they got it and became enlightened you know this wasn't a question of every now and then there would be somebody who was able to do this and there were rare and, and, and few uh, or, or that uh, the Buddha had to painstakingly guide them through years and years and years of of, of practice before they attained it. Something is something was different then <laughs> than, than it is now. It's a different culture. It's a different culture. Because our culture is kind of the opposite in a whole bunch of ways. It's anti-mindfulness culture, at least in my opinion. <laughs> well, our culture is different in many ways. It's not necessarily quite as different as we might imagine. You know, we we might imagine the time of the Buddha that everybody was a skilled meditator and everybody was you know, dedicated themselves to uh, uh, this. But uh, he said, after his enlightenment, Now, while the Blessed One was alone in retreat, this thought arose in him. This law that I have attained, it is profound and hard to see, hard to discover. 
It is the most peaceful and superior goal of all, not attainable by mere rationalist thinking. <laughs> Rationalization. Subtle for the wise to experience. But this generation relies on attachment, relishes attachment, delights in attachment. Mm-hmm. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth. That is to say, specific conditionality dependent arising. And it is hard to see this truth, that is to say, stilling of all formations, relinquishing of the essentials of existence, exhaustion of craving, fading of lust, cessation, nirvana. And if I taught the law, others would not understand me, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Thereupon there came to him spontaneously these stanzas never heard before. Enough of teaching the law that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Men die in lust, and whom a cloud of darkness laps will never see what goes against the stream is subtle, deep, and hard to see those truths. Well, fortunately, he changed his mind. (laughs) He changed his mind and... uh, He said, there are creatures, as he thought about it more, he said, there are creatures with little dust on their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the law. Some of them will gain final knowledge of the law. So uh, the Blessed One, then he decided, he said, so to whom shall I teach the law? And this began his teaching. He made the decision, thought about uh, who he could teach. And uh, at first... The first, you know, he was trying to think, well, this is difficult. Who can understand this? And so he thought, well, ah, the Dr. Ramaputra and Alara Kalama, my teachers, let me go and teach them. But then he found out that they, both of them had died very recently, just within uh, days of uh, his enlightenment. And then he thought, well, who else? And then he, there had been uh, five other ascetics that he had been practicing with and traveling with for many years. And uh, he thought, these are, these are the ones. And so he went and uh, he taught them. And sure enough, they all became enlightened uh, not too long period of time. I'd, I'd love to read you that story if we had the time. Maybe, maybe next week. Okay. Uh, it's very nice because this is his very first teachings where he introduces uh, the basic teaching. And it's really worth... Uh, it's really worth reading and, and, and talking about. But anyway, he was successful with these five yogis, profoundly skilled meditators, deeply trained, uh, having, like uh, the, uh, the Buddha himself, having been exposed to uh, a number of, of different t- teachers. So, then what does he do? Well, Having done that, he leaves, and he encounters the son of a merchant. And uh, the son of a merchant sits down uh, and uh, starts asking him questions. And uh, he seems to the Buddha to be right for understanding. And so he teaches him the Dharma, and lo and behold, he becomes awakened. And, of course, the Merchant had been out looking for his missing son, who'd been sitting in the woods talking to the Buddha all this time. 
all this time means I think a day and a night. And the merchant uh, had become quite concerned. So then he found them, and uh, anyway, arrangements were made that the Buddha would come and uh, have a meal with the family the next day. Well, the the sister and the mother become enlightened, and then within a few days, and, and that's that's at the dinner table. And then within a few days, the dad does too, you know. And so it just starts going on like this. And so you see what happened is he thought to himself, "Oh, this you know, it, in this world filled with desire and lust and attachment, there's no hope. Nobody will understand. This is too, too subtle. This is too profound." And then changing his mind, of course, he chooses the highest teachers that he knows, uh, and, and then moves on from them to to uh, fellow yogis with many years of practice, uh, which gives him the encouragement. But then from then on now, boom, he's right into rich merchant's sons and rich merchant's daughters and rich merchant's wife and then the rich merchant himself. And then, and then as you go on in the stories, it's just there's more and more of these, you know. So it's not just that the meditation itself is presented as being far easier than uh, we're finding in the modern world, but the attainment of the fruits of the practice, likewise, are are easier. And uh, this is this is what we need to get back. Yes. So what do you think was different back then? You know what I think was different back then. that as a result of the Buddha's long struggle, and whether you want to think of that as the seven years that he spent, uh, and and I can read you some things at another occasion that give you some idea of the degree of his dedication. It was pretty extreme. You know, he wasn't hanging out in the woods saying, gee, I hope I get enlightened someday. He was going for it. As a result of the struggle, whether you think of it as seven years or as some stories would have it of, of many eons of lifetimes that led up to this, as a result of that, <clears throat> I think that he had a, a very profound understanding of the way that the mind works. And so, uh, and, and I think the teachers that he learned meditation from likewise had a profound understanding of the way that the mind works. And I think that that's what's missing. When I took up the study and practice of Buddhism, uh, I was confronted with formulas. And a lot of, you know, and I had the good fortune to be in contact with with teachers uh, who had achieved significant spiritual attainments. But they didn't teach from a place of knowing exactly how they, uh, of truly knowing exactly how they had got to be where they were. They had been presented with formulas, and uh, they had struggled their way through those over a long period of time. And then the only way that they knew to teach me was to present me that the same. can teachings, you know, and that's what we get today, uh, over and over again. We get these, you know, you'll 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 go for a teaching, and you'll get presented with something that is word for word what somebody taught 
in another language uh, a thousand years ago in a completely different culture. And that's what you'll be presented with today with a little bit of elaboration and interpretation. And you're supposed to take that and figure out how to go home and uh, achieve uh, samatha. You know, or you're supposed to take that and go home and figure out how to achieve insight. And so there's a distinction between achieving samatha or achieving awakening and knowing how you did it. And there's also a difference between having attained those things and being able to effectively guide and teach other people to that. Now, I've encountered some teachers that have a great deal of skill, a lot more than than others, but uh, I'm hoping, see, I I, I, uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not coming from a place in ego, that, that I really, really am hoping that I can unlock some of these te- these secrets and pass them along to you uh, that if I can get it right and figure out how it works, that you'll be able to master these meditation techniques and then as a result of that, achieve the uh, awakening that they are intended to lead you to. And to whatever degree I succeed, hopefully a number of you will carry that on. I'm sure some of you are uh, a lot smarter than I am. And so if you can take what I teach you and succeed at it, then you can examine it in the same way and make it even better. So we can reverse this process. I think we've got all the basic tools that we need to get back to doing what happened then. But what, what fortunately we had back in those days is a person who had this profound understanding and so could teach effectively to many different people, modifying the teaching and modifying the, the method according to the, uh, the nature and the inclinations of, of the student. Uh, and I think that he passed that along, but I think over 2,500 years, that part of it got lost. I think that's the part of the Dhamma that has gotten lost. And what I see reading a lot of texts, both ancient and modern, is there's been a lot of people who understood the words, but didn't didn't do the practice and didn't penetrate into the practice. Now it's a good thing that they did understand the words and pass them on to us because you know we have them now today. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I think got lost along the way. I think that's the difference between then and now. I think people are probably just as much, we're just as much caught up in uh, uh, all of these negative mental states, just as attached to their own uh, sense of ego and self as, as they are now. As a matter of fact, let me just tell you something about the spiritual milieu that the Buddha moved into when he left home. Out of the Brahmanical tradition, which was based on ritual sacrifice, which was intended to ensure the continuity of the universe as it was, and the rain for the crops and everything else, there arose uh, people 
of a more profound perspective. And they tended to reject the world of magic, ritual, sacrifice, uh, incantations, and so forth. And they tended to be the ones that went off to the forest and practiced and studied together for the purpose of trying to achieve a deeper understanding. But what had developed in the uh, in the Brahmanical tradition was a, a view of reincarnation, that when people died, that they were born again, uh, over and over again, according to, uh, basically according to how well they had kept the ritual formalities of a previous of a previous life. And in these uh, many teachers, the forest ascetics and, uh, that we're talking about who uh, represented the birth of a more profound spiritual quest, they still, uh, they still assumed that you, that we had a permanent a soul, that we had a permanent abiding entity that could put on a new body like a new set of clothes. Or else they assumed that we had a self, a separate entity that animated this body and uh, employed this mind, but that it was not eternal and that with the dissolution of the body it would be destroyed. So this was the prevalent the prevalent spiritual controversy and philosophical discussions all revolved around what happened to the self that everybody assumed they had, the soul, this per this this abiding entity. And the two predominant views is one is that it was persistent, eternal would be reborn over and over again, but to be reborn over and over again meant to re-die over and over again, and therefore the spiritual quest was to break the cycle of birth and death so that there was no more re-death. Um, within that were many who weren't so eager to uh, end the cycle of rebirth and re-death because uh, they were attached to it, but they wanted to realize this uh, this self uh, to attain to uh, uh, to basically to live on a much higher plane because if they could discover their true self if they could discover this soul that this would give them the power to direct uh, where they went after the dissolution of the body. And then the other group were the materialists, who didn't for a moment doubt that they had a soul, but they, they said, and when you die, that's it, baby, it is gone. There is no hope. This is not particularly different than the views in the world today, except I think we have a whole lot more agnostics. But there are those who either believe we have a, a soul, it's a permanent, eternal soul of some form, and who are concerned with its well-being and what's going to happen to it. And then we have the materialists who deny that, you know, but they still uh, they still have this attachment to themselves as a self, 
And as a result, the materialist philosophy leads to the view, well, might as well eat, drink, and, and be merry. This is all there is. Better make the best of it. You know, kind of leads to, to that point of view. So, philosophically, what the Buddha introduced was this shattering idea that, you know, you guys are wrong. That not only, it, it, you know, not only is there not a permanent abiding soul, there isn't even one to be destroyed when you die. That they're just, this is a difficult, this is a very difficult idea to grasp. But it underlies the ultimate awakening. I took you, I took you through three stages of awakening earlier. Overcoming the personality view that I am this body, mind, set of characteristics, so on and so forth, which we all automatically have. Then, once that's where it comes, the second stage is, is uh, largely overcoming craving, desire, and aversion. The third stage is completely overcoming craving, and desire, and aversion as applies to the sense realm. The fourth stage, the complete awakening of the Buddha, is overcoming the inherent sense of a separate self, that we are in any way a separate entity. And so when... And that is not the annihilation of the materialist. That's not that, well, I had this sense of being a self, and what's left when it's gone. Because when... With the transcending of this inherent sense of self, there is the realization of the of the ultimate reality from which one is inseparable. And let's leave it there, because any any attempt to describe it or philosophically penetrate it will only lead to to views which can be confusing. But So this is this is about something that the reason the Buddha thought, hey, people aren't going to go for this. I'm not going to be able to teach this is because, you know, I'm going to help you get over yourself. <laughs> wait, 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 wait! <laughs> I spent my whole life taking care of myself. <laughs> so, so maybe uh, maybe next week. I'd like to read to you about the Buddha's first teaching experience when he meets up with his uh, his old pals from wandering through the forest and living on three grains of rice a day and things like that. And how he goes about explaining to them, uh, to them what it is that uh, he figured out, what it is he discovered. And in the meantime, uh, thank you for uh, this wonderful, enjoyable discussion and I'll let you go home to your suppers and beds or families or whatever else that is you have waiting.